Now, the uh, title of the talk this morning is Default Settings. I assume most of you are familiar with that particular term. A default setting is like the factory settings, right? Maybe they're on the electronics you purchase. You've got some default settings on your phone or your computer. Um, whatever, maybe electronical instruments you have. They, most of them come with some basic encoded information that's a part of the, uh, the factory settings. Every, everyone's phone's equipped the same way. Everyone's computer, perhaps, is equipped the same way. And uh, it's this basic information that's a part of the makeup of that particular thing. And for many of us, it's pretty, that's familiar to us. We're used to that idea. But I wonder how often in times in life we think about the idea that in our upbringing that many of us have been encoded with some default settings. What I mean is that there's enough of an immersion in the culture that we live in that slowly we become inundated with these default settings that just seem as natural as if you were released from the factory. Right? I'm not talking just about the big ones like consumerism. Consumerism is a huge default setting that many of us live into and don't see it any other way than to be consumeristic or materialism or individualism. That is like one of the gods of our culture is to be individualistic, to be your own person, to do your own thing. The list goes on and on, but I'm not just talking about those kind of bigger default settings. In many ways, we have natural reactions just in life that have grown from default settings. Uh, Here's one. Maybe you have a default setting of turning to great anger when somebody cuts you off while you're driving. Your natural reaction right away is like you're angry, you're hitting the horn, maybe you're having some finger motions that are part of your default setting. Maybe uh, I, I love it when I see people who like get cut off and their first default is like to just speed up and like ride right along that person I don't know if their goal is to like just stare them down or if the goal is to like sear the memory of that person's face into, the, into their mind so that if they ever see them again, they might be able to confront them. I, I don't know what the goal is, but for Sam, that's kind of the default setting. Uh, maybe, uh, here's an, another one that I've seen that maybe might be a part of your default setting. At any moment that you find yourself bored or uninterested, or there's not enough stimulation in life and there's not a lot of activity going on, your conversation's running thin, you have two seconds of pause in life, the default setting is to pull out your phone, right? Maybe that's a new default setting that we've kind of begun to adopt. Uh, here's, here's one that I use every time that I'm at the store. I'm at the store, it doesn't matter if I'm there for like two minutes, five minutes, for some reason everyone comes up to me, I must look like I don't know what I'm doing when I'm at the store, Uh, but they come up and they're like, hey, can I help you with anything, my default setting, every time, doesn't matter, is no thanks, I'm just looking, right, every time the salesperson comes up, it doesn't even matter if the first five minutes in the store I'm frantically running around trying to find an item, I still will just go, hey, no thanks, I'm just looking, I don't know what it is, but it's my natural reaction. And for all of us, we have these natural reactions in life that become in some way or another default settings. In 2005, at Kenyon College, David Foster Wallace gave a graduation speech 
that speaks to this idea of default settings. I don't know if you've heard of the speech. It's called This is Water. And he starts off by saying this. These are direct quotes from his speech. It says this, There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? Now he goes on to explain what he means by this. Like They've been swimming in water their whole life. They know no different. It's been a part of the way that they were created. And he goes on to say this. The immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is, that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have life or death importance. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of it is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. He goes on to say, Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something that I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realist, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you are not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you or behind you, to the left or to the right, on your TV, on your monitor, or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. You get the idea. But please don't worry that I'm getting ready to preach to you about compassion or other directedness or so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural, hardwired, default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. That's how he started the graduation speech. See, what Wallace is getting at is the true idea or understanding that at the core of us, one of our basic, most default settings is that we are deeply and literally self-centered. That the world, in some way, is about us. That we think that we exist, and that the rest of the world exists around us. That's our tendency. Our tendency is for it to be all about us. And that's not what a transformed life looks like. All right, so last week, we talked about Einstein, elbow learning, and neuroplasticity. And the idea was to be transformed. What does it look like to be transformed? How do we work our way, act our way, live our way into a new way of thinking? And we we dealt with what does that really look like to live a transformed life and what does it mean to have a renewed mind? And I think that the passage for this morning goes on to begin to describe what a renewed mind is all about. So Paul is essentially saying, listen, you want to be transformed, you want your mind to be renewed, this is what a renewed mind is. And in verse 3 it says this, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of 
among you not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we all have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now I read more than just verse 3 for a reason, because uh, in a couple weeks after Easter we're going to talk about a second default setting. The second default setting we're going to talk about is individualism. This idea that, as you notice here, go back real quick, go back. It says, for by grace that all of us should think of ourselves with sober judgment. And then one of the ways in which I think we think with sober judgment is to recognize that we're not on our own. So the word for equals for reason. It equals a reason. So the reason to think with sober judgment or the reason to think about yourself the way you ought to think, is because you are a part of a body. We're going to talk about that in weeks to come. That you are not on your own. That you're not your own person with your own gifts and having no relation to everyone else in the Christian community. Right? That's what we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. But this week, Paul says, and we're going to hit on this phrase, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think but think with sober thinking. That's what it's literally saying. You can see a little bit of repetition, can you not? Paul's getting at a point. Don't think, but think, thinking. Think, 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 thinking, right? Four times, one verse. He's getting at this idea that a renewed mind is to adjust our thinking in a particular way. He wants to shape the way that we're going to think. And really, it's a command. If you're looking at the text, it's a command to say that God wants us to think accurately, clearly, biblically about who we truly are. And I want to suggest that what Paul's getting at is one big idea that is expressed in a couple different ways. And the big idea, or the big point this morning is this, it's not about you. It's not about you. That's what he's getting at. First, first baseline idea To renew your thinking is for you and for I to understand that it is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us, right? It's not. That's the first thing he's trying to get us to understand. Because for many of us, when we start to think about ourselves, we tend to either have an overestimation of who we are or an underestimation of who we are. We either have this overinflated view that man, like everything is going really well. I've, I've got the world on a string. Look at me. Look at all I've accomplished. Look at who I am. And it becomes this overinflated view. Or you have an underinflated view, which is to, to think too lowly of yourself, to feel weak, to feel incapable or unworthy. Um, to hear, to you, maybe you've heard things like, I'm worthless or I don't have anything to offer, or other things like this, right? But here's the issue that I think Paul is getting at. If you think too highly of yourself, or if you think too lowly of yourself, right? Who are you thinking about? Yourself. Still. Default setting. It doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. It doesn't matter if you think you're in one place or the other, or if you're directing all of your attention. Regardless, that's the default setting that you're still thinking about, that you and I are still thinking about, 
ourselves. So what I did this morning is I wanted to come up with a few ideas of what does it look like to be an overinflated view of self, to have an overinflated view of self. And we could probably shout out a few. I'm just going to give you a couple that I've come up with. Uh, there's a tendency for those with an overinflated view to rule over others. It's kind of like my, high, my way or the highway. I get to decide. I'm actually the one that probably knows best. I'm the one that uh, the rest of you probably don't know uh, as much about whatever subject it is. And so I want to kind of lead the way. Or maybe it's self-centered. The direction or the focus comes back to them. It's what I want. It's what I need. Or confident. Confident is a nice way of saying proud or arrogant or egotistical. Right? Critical. Meaning other people can't do it well. Or not nearly as well as I could. Or in some ways, critical because if I can, if I can cut George down... Okay, if I can chop him down to size, then that makes me a little bit better, or at least feel a little bit better about myself, right? And so you see people that have an overinflated view, in some ways, cutting others down to size. Becoming defensive. If I think I'm the center of the world, and you think something different, then I'm going to quickly become defensive about my position in the world. And last, self-promoting. That means the idea that uh, I'm directing attention to myself. Or, or maybe a, a way that it shows up is that you, you heard of the term spinning the room. That term basically is like I'm, I'm talking, all the focus is directed to me. And then as soon as that focus goes off of me and goes on to someone else, I hear something and I bring it back to me. I spin the room and now I'm in the center again. And then it gets deflected, and then I spin the room again, and then I'm back in the center. And all I'm doing is trying to figure out how to stay the center. That's just a quick picture of perhaps someone that would see themselves in an overinflated view of self. Here's maybe an underinflated. Underinflated view. Self-absorbed. Self-deprecating. Always concentrating on uh, their needs always feeling perhaps a sense of fear, maybe expressing uh, denial, being very passive, pessimistic, things aren't going well, they continue not to go well. In each of these situations, I pointed out and want to say at least one more time that it's not about you. And in all of these, I mean, I could have probably started with the word self on every single descriptor, right? Because in some way or another, it comes back to directing attention to us. And my suggestion is that Paul addresses both of those groups of people in this one verse. And here's how he does it. In the very beginning of the verse, he says this, For the overinflated, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Right? To the overinflated, he says this, there's grace. Right? You need to understand and grasp grace to change your default setting. Grace, put in Ephesians, is talked about this way. But God, being rich in mercy because of his love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He says, by grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. What Paul is getting at in Ephesians is that it's all grace. It's by grace that you've been saved. It's by grace that he extended himself to us. It's by grace that he shows his immeasurable riches. It's by grace that he demonstrates kindness to us in Christ. And it's by grace that you've been saved, not of anything that you or I could do, but simply by the work of Jesus Christ. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. And I think the challenge that Paul is making when he starts off the verse this way is to say, if you want to shift from having an overinflated view of self to having a better, changed, renewed mind, it starts by living at the foot of the cross. It starts by waking up every morning and acknowledging your need of Christ. John Stott put it this way. He said, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing Your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. What he's getting at is, Simply this truth that if every day I wake up intent on recognizing and understanding the grace that I've received and then walking in that grace, there's no way I can live in pride. There's no way I can walk around with an inflated view of myself if every morning I remind myself that it is only by His grace. It's only by His grace. And His gift helps me to recognize and actually have a sober judgment of myself. To the underinflated, that's to the overinflated, to the underinflated, he says this at the end of the verse. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In another version, this is the complete Jewish Bible version, it says this, for I'm telling every single one of you, Though the grace that has been given to me not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance. Instead, develop a sober estimate of yourself based on the standard which God has given to each of you, namely trust. So the standard that God has given is namely trust, or the measure of faith that God has given is what the text is talking about, right? And I would say this as kind of a second point. The dominant characteristic of an authentic spiritual life or of a renewed mind is trust. That if we want to understand again what a renewed mind looks like, if we want to understand what an authentic Christian life looks like, it's centered on the idea of trust. And trust is not just the belief that God is going to work out the situation exactly the way that you were hoping. That's not trust. Trust is not just 
God, I hope you and I are on the same page because uh, I've got these plans this week, and if you can put it all in line, then that would be great. And I trust you for it. Right? Again, not the point necessarily of trust. I know this is a space that uh, the last couple days I've been living in. Um, The Chicago trip takes a ton of time and work and effort to put together. And um, just a day ago, the co-leader of the trip for me, a good friend of mine, Julius, he was here um, a couple months ago, um, is stuck in Bonaire. His home uh, is on a little island off the coast of Venezuela. Uh, That's where he grew up. But he's stuck there for a week. Doesn't have his green card and can't leave. So, the trip, I'm still pumped about it, but it's going to be an experiment on the fly, and it's going to be great. But, trust isn't about whether or not that trip's going to come together just the way I want it to. Trust isn't about whether or not all the details will come together, right? Trust is more than that. Just the other day, I was sitting in the courthouse, and we were trusting that God would have a great rendering for uh, this sentencing of a friend of mine. And uh, the sentencing did not go the way we anticipated. And uh, he will be behind bars for several years. And I have to then go, okay, what does trust look like now, right? How does trust change? All of those are examples of part of trust. But I think for this idea that Paul is getting at, This idea that he's really trying to drive home, it's more of an issue of do we trust in his sufficiency for us? Not plans, not outcomes, not court sentencing, not trips, not uh, graduation dates and times, not all of those kinds of things that we plan for. This is more about his sufficiency for us. Let me take you to a passage of scripture to explain what I mean. And I'll wrap up with this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my uh, favorite little sections of Scripture, it says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Paul's talking about his ministry among people. He's talking about what he's declaring is the gospel. And he says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now that right there is an amazing statement. What he's saying is that the God who spoke into existence light out of darkness is the same God that spoke into existence the light of Christ in your life to take you from a place of darkness to complete light, to take you from a place of not being a child of God to being a child of God, to take you from a place of not in knowledge or knowing Him to a place of complete knowledge and knowing of Him, right? That there's this remarkable thing that happens as God speaks into our life. And then He ends with this statement. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we'll just do a little quick breakdown of this verse. Treasure. What is it? Treasure is this. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what he's saying is that we, right, we have a treasure 
within us. Christ resides, his spirit resides within us. So we have this treasure, and it's in what? It's in jars of clay. The point is that it's in fragile, broken, insignificant, cracked me. And broken and insignificant and cracked and vulnerable and weak, you. And when we feel in our place of being underinflated, or even in our place of feeling overinflated, regardless of where we find ourselves, the point he's making is that the power belongs to who? God and not to That it is hidden at work in us. The only thing that we can do is sit back and marvel at the fact that he would choose us. Because it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. I think what Paul is getting at is that there's grace and trust. To the overinflated really to all of us, that it is his grace that reminds us to reflect on the cross, which reminds us that we're not big stuff. And it is his trust, or our trust in him, that reminds us that we are only jars of clay, but it is his surpassing greatness that works through us. Let me pray in closing the words of verse 3. Let's pray. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In Christ, may we experience your grace this week. May we live at the foot of the cross. May we be reminded of your sacrifice in a way that humbles us, that breaks us, that doesn't allow us to stand in any, uh, with any haughty perspective, but rather gives us sober thinking. And for those of us that feel that we're not in the place of having much to offer, not being in the place of being able to be used, May you remind us that it is your glory at work in us, in our broken, frail jars of clay, to show that it's you. And in both of those, God, we realize that it's not about us, but it's all about you. And we pray that to you belongs all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.